38 Minutes, a podcast of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. In 38 Minutes, we'll give you something interesting to think about. Joining Jeff Frederick, the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, or Jonathan Frederick and Tamara Poles from the Moorhead Planetarium and Science Center. Valinda Wariax, Chair of the UNCP Department of Biology, and Andy Gross from the UNCP Geology and Geography Department. Now get ready for 38 Minutes. This is Chancellor Robin Cummings, and I want to thank you for listening to 30 Brave Minutes. Our faculty and students provide expertise, energy, and passion driving our region forward. Our commitment to Southeastern North Carolina has never been stronger through our teaching, our research, and our community outreach. I want to encourage you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. With your help, we will continue our impact for generations to come. You can donate online at uncp.edu slash give. Thanks again for listening. Now back to more 30 Brave Minutes. Imagine if the subject you were an expert in was so complicated that explaining it to the general public was somewhere between unlikely and impossible. Imagine if the specialized research you were engaged in was absolutely critical to public health or understanding the universe or making an informed decision about preparing for another hurricane. But the scientific method, jargon, equipment, and findings were too complicated to explain in a two-minute soundbite, a Facebook post, or even a 30-minute podcast. And imagine if the knowledge you had spent years accumulating was critical to some global or national or state issue, or even some local matter that needed to be voted upon. Just to add one more mountain to climb, Imagine if talk show hosts or next-door neighbors were convinced that the one data point they heard on TV or the radio was the one and only element needed to understand something that highly trained experts, scholars, and researchers all over the world had been working on for decades. It's not easy to communicate ideas about anything that's particularly complicated, but the need to take science into the community has never been greater. We've all seen Star Wars, or maybe even Star Trek, So we think we know what a laser can do, but who among us can explain how it works and what, other than blasting bad guys, can and should be done with one? Discoveries and their implications are coming faster than ever, and while social media is particularly good for letting others know what you had for lunch, it's not all that effective for describing why vaccines are important or why genetic engineering and genome editing is science and not science fiction. As Stanford University scientists Sarah Brownell, Jordan Price, and Lawrence Steinman have argued, quote, developing skills to communicate science at a level that a general audience can understand requires deliberate practice and careful attention to language. Say the wrong thing and you cause a panic. Say the right thing and perhaps a small percentage of the population understands. When communicating with the public, scientists use analogies and examples. They think about their audience, and they try to keep away from jargon or technical terms that might confuse. Science is usually quantifiable, placing math front and center to understanding the natural world and adding another layer of difficulty for many lay folk. The American Association for the Advancement of Science reminds scientists to make their public lessons memorable, meaningful, and miniature. But again, that is easier said than done. And in fact, Given the critical nature of taking funding requests to a variety of sources, it is absolutely essential. In short, science is hard, 
but it's critical for society to know how scientists work, how they conduct research and verify findings, and why scientific inquiry is more important than ever to understanding the world around us. Joining us today are trained scientists who are experts at taking science into the public arena and helping us to understand the impossible. Welcome to Jonathan Frederick and Tamara Poles from the Moorhead Planetarium at UNC Chapel Hill, and to Valinda Oriax, Chair of the UNC Pembroke Biology Department, and Amy Gross from the Geology and Geography Department here at UNCP. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, let's start with the basics. Why did you become a scientist? And in short, what is cool about science? I became a scientist because of wonderment. So I think I grew up and people were pointing things out and I was told to always be observant because those observations meant something. Sundays were spent around the family porch and everybody was there talking about what had happened the week before and wondering about what would happen because they'd seen this sign and they knew it meant a certain thing. And I think that's what's important today is tapping into that wonderment, that natural curiosity for students and trying to help them expand upon it. And Valinda, you're not only an expert in chemistry, but also in biology. How, how, tell us about that story. How did you become a, a Jedi Knight in both areas? <laughs> I, my dad was a farmer. I think he was more akin to an engineer, so he would take two pieces of equipment that no longer worked together, figure out some way of doing that. My mother was an educator, and so that was the wonderment. She really played that part up. I would think the chemistry part came from my grandparents. Both of my grandmothers were involved in making medicines for the community, so they were constantly involved in mixing compounds together, which meant they had to know that to be able to identify what they saw in their surroundings, know the correct quantity of those things to add together, and the proper way and order of mixing them. And I grew up under them because we were always around one family or the other, so I think that part came from my grandparents and my parents. This is Jonathan. Uh, thank you so much for having us here. This is exciting. And Felinda's story reminds me a lot about uh, what we hear from many scientists we work with in the work we do with museums and celebrating science is that it sounds like you had mentors, role models, people tinkering, things happening outside of the classroom. Um, and we, we do these activities with scientists where we have them think back and reflect on powerful experiences. And a lot of times there's stories like that. And it just reminds me how important it is that we get young people or people of all ages sort of exploring in ways that are, that are novel and interesting and lead to that wonderment you're talking about. So what about the rest of y'all? What, what got you hooked on science? Why is, it, why is it so cool? Oh, I know with me, and this is Tamara, by the way, I know with me, mine actually started with a TV show, believe it or not. When I was younger, I used to watch the show Beekman's World, and it was about this scientist with a lime green lab coat and crazy black hair, and he would do cool experiments and tell us why we should care about science, and he would do awesome stuff on on TV, but he had a young female lab assistant, and I always wanted to be her because she was always helping him in the labs. She was always taking part in the experiments. So then I would then try to do the same thing they did on TV by experimenting in my parents' bathroom. But really, I just learned how to, like, stain different towels with toothpaste. But uh, I took that sense of discovery and curiosity into actual labs and was have been excited about it ever since. 
Did you ever get the lime green lab coat? I didn't, but I do have a, a tie-dye lab coat and a part of my impacts program where scientists graduate from uh, in science communication. They actually graduate and get a tie-dye lab coat. And I think some of it's from that lime green lab coat, me wanting that movie back in the day. And I'm like, no, I'm going to one-up it. They get tie-dye lab coats. A little GoFundMe for lime green Absolutely. lab coat. <laughs> yeah. Christmas gifts are out there. there. Yes. Amy, what about you? The geologist is here now. When I was growing up, as you could probably guess, I really liked learning about dinosaurs, as did my brother. I was also very interested in ice ages of the past and the Pleistocene megafauna. I had a healthy fear of the San Andreas Fault. One half of me wanted to move to California and, and be a private detective like Charlie's Angels, and the other half of me was just so scared of that fault. Anyway, I was just always very interested in Earth's history and thought that eventually I might need to become a geologist. You guys all have individual stories of your own What about what got you excited about discovery and, and inquiry and curiosity and wonderment. How do you translate that to grade school students or other young people? How do you get them excited about having that same kind of moment that you had years ago? I don't think that's hard. I think kids are naturally curious, and they want to make sure that they are this the most often want to be the center of attention, so they're going to talk nonstop, and if there's something to try, they want to be the first one to try it. And I think you just kind of have to feed into that a little bit. And so that wonderment then becomes, if you can put something in their hands and let them figure out something about that thing that you've given them, I think that's one of the ways of using a little snag to get them interested in science. I think creating a safe space, I very, I very much agree with Linda on that one. Allowing them to be curious and explore on their own, but and yet creating that safe space for them to do so and helping them and uh, monitoring that. Personally, what I like to do is I like to have hands-on activities. With the hands-on activities, I try to create it around stuff that they care about. Yes, I might care about something different than what these kids care about, but I need to figure out why should they care? Why should they get excited about my research? Or why should they get excited about research in general? And what can they do that is similar to what I'm doing to get them excited and make it relevant to them? And I think that will help spark that curiosity for them because it's relatable to them and they're getting their hands dirty. That's right. I, I want to echo that. The, uh, the idea that kids are natural scientists, I think, is, is well established. I mean, we're by our own nature, we're curious by design. We have these big brains we want to explore, and we actually never lose that. At any age, you find people wanting to try and test new things, but children in particular are just adept at the process of science. They want to build, they want to iterate, they want to build again, they want to have the blocks fall down and put them back together and see what happens, and that's just the fundamental nature of what being a scientist is. I think a, a tougher question is how do we not beat that out of them or, or bore them to death and this may be me getting on my soapbox a little bit, but I think it's, uh, it's important to keep uh, young people and all people engaged in science in ways that make sense for them, meet them where they are. You heard Tamara talk about uh, she saw something in that female lab assistant on that television show. So representation matters, hands-on activities matter, keeping it fun matters. And there is a subtle art to how you do that. As you said in your introduction, it's, it's, it's deceptively difficult to, to make things simple to make things easy. So that's where uh, we need the help of experts to get involved and want to do this work, like these great scientists we have here, 
and we need um, universities and cultural institutions like museums and libraries to foster sort of this ecosystem that's, that's a lot of fun for people to play in a safe uh, and celebratory way. And science is, is one aspect of learning that's not just about the destination. It's not just about getting the answer. There's so many answers along the way and so much curiosity by you know, creating a journey of, uh, of inquiry. How do you guys do that? I mean, what, what is a, an example of an interesting activity that you've done with uh, young people that really got them excited about the process of doing science? When I do uh, classroom visits at the grade schools, I always bring a collection of minerals. So as Jonathan and Tamara were saying, hands-on activities are something that the kids really enjoy and they don't get bored very quickly and it allows them to get their hands dirty, but it also allows them to do um, some simple scientific tests. So I'll give them each table a collection of minerals. I will teach them the different tests for the minerals. So they might have to test the hardness of a mineral and that's where you run the mineral along a glass plate to see if it'll scratch glass or not. They might test the streak of a mineral, which is the color of the mineral when powdered. If they're old enough students, I might give them dilute hydrochloric acid, and then they can put a drop of acid on danger. different... Danger, that's good. Yeah, a little bit of danger. <laughs> they nice. like danger. Yeah, of course. And, and instruct them, you know, you really only need this on the minerals that have a clear or milky color, and they would be testing for the presence of calcium carbonate trying to figure out which mineral is calcite. So in a hands-on activity like that, they're actually conducting tests to try to identify these unknown minerals, and they, they seem to respond very well. And you're actually, without them knowing it, sort of teaching them how to scaffold a, a, an increasing amount of complexity into the analysis that they're doing. And I think it's a key to have like ways to fail um, because that's an important lesson in, in science, and I think you probably our scientists here have some failures in your past. I don't want to make any assumptions, <laughs> but like where the research didn't go the way it was supposed to, or, or the dissertation needed to be reworked. I think providing uh, safety nets for people to do that, um, like through different activities where they can make messes, so they can do things quasi dangerous and, and screw up, and then try to kind of deconstruct what happened to, to, to figure out how to make it work the next time is, is key. And even on one level, if the findings come out of one research experiment that are, you know, mind-blowing, you're about to change the entire way in which people look at this piece of knowledge, you have to go back and replicate it multiple times in order to make sure that the science and the journey that you started on continues to reach that same destination. That sort of adds this one additional layer of complexity. Okay, great, you did it once. Keep doing it. <laughs> right. So uh, all of you are engaged in all sorts of different programs and outreach activities. Talk about some of the very specific programs that you're a part of. I know the planetarium does an awful lot of things that we've been able to partner with. Talk about those programs and, and what you're trying to accomplish. Tamara, should we talk about impacts first? I'm going to put you on the spot. I know you're going to tell you about that to me, but I think we should talk about impacts. Okay. Well, um, I was going to throw it to the Science Festival first because we were born out of the Science Festival, but uh, we'll wait for Jonathan to talk about the Science Festival first. So uh, I'll talk about impacts. So impacts stands for Inspiring Meaningful Programs and Communication Through Science. And in this program, we train scientists how to communicate to the public and then create opportunities for them to practice and hone their skills in science communication. And it's a statewide program. We train 50 scientists a year. The trainings are, we have two trainings on Saturdays where they learn how to 
not teach like they're professors. Um, sorry for those of you that you said there are professors. Sometimes you can get on the boring side, and when you go into a classroom, most kids aren't going to be interested in a PowerPoint. So how do you go into a classroom and get kids excited about science but not teach the way that we've been taught throughout our years in college how to teach. So how to mix it up in the classroom, get kids excited. And then another training is how to go to a community event or a festival, get people excited from K to gray, people excited about science, that you have to compete with rides and cotton candy. How are you going to get them to come to your table? So that is what the training is. And then we give them opportunities to go to these events with me and with other staff at Moorhead Planetarium and Science Center and practice. And they get and they get consultations from us. So that's uh, what the impacts program and what that does. And we do lots of awesome events. We partner with um, UNC Pembroke on a lot of things. It's actually one of our sites here. Um, we're based in uh, four locations around the state. And, and Pembroke is one of them, and we we do um, our a symposium here at UNCP, which is a conference style event for kids, where we bus over a hundred kids from uh, Cumberland County and Robeson County into UNCP, and there's a conference. Uh, the impactors that are in the program are running the concurrent sessions. There's a keynote address, which of course it's hands on and engaging with the keynote address. And then the uh, concurrent sessions that the kids get to go to are all fun. It's about 30 minutes apiece, and it just gives kids a taste of different STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics fields. And it's just a really fun day. And also, the kids get swag bags, too. So it's a good time for everybody, the um, instructors and also the kids. So um, that, in a nutshell, is the IMPACTS program and what we do here at UNCP. And I would say uh, what's fun about that, I'm curious from the scientist's perspective, how did you feel about those? The first year you did it, when you got out there within front of the kids, was it, were you nervous? Was it fun? I think part of that for us, both Amy and I have been going out into the schools for a number of years, so that part was right. not the different part. The different part for me was not talking with the student from this locale, but from other locales, and thinking, how can I tie in from students here? I think I had that part down. Mm -hmm. But that's very different from how to talk to a student from another location. And that's because everybody brings a little bit of something different to the table. Our experiences are not the same. My grandparents, I alluded to before, my grandmother, one could read, the other one could not. But they, they both did the same thing in the community. And I think that's important for me is realizing that you still have to tap into that same curiosity level, but the way of doing it is different, very different. Cool. The other one thing neat about impacts that I love is that it fits into this whole world of hashtag SciComm, right? It's science communication, and it's really exploded in the past decade. But why we've decided to launch this program here in North Carolina is that it uh, actually tracks with real data. Where we used to do, as museum educators from UNC Moorhead Planetarium and Science Center, we go out and do fun events with the public, and they like it. But if we bring experts and scientists there, the audience loves it hurts my feelings a little bit because I thought I was doing a good job, but really meeting actual experts makes a difference. And this, these, this survey data has been repl replicated nationally. It's as solid as it comes that having scientists share their love of what they do with the audience makes a lasting impact. So that's one program we do uh, to get the people excited, but it's all part of the North Carolina Science Festival. Yeah, sorry. Oh, well, I was just going to add that, and also a really cool feature of the IMPACTS program is that we mainly focus on training diverse scientists how to communicate to the public because there's a misconception within kids and also adults that they think, 
all scientists look like Einstein, but we don't. We come in all shapes, sizes, genders, everything. So we make sure to have a diverse group of scientists going out into the public because I can't tell you how many times so many of my lecturers go to a classroom or go to an event and come back and that was shocked by hearing a kid say, oh, you look like me. I can be a scientist too. And that is so powerful. Representation really matters. And I think that's one of the best parts about this program is that we make sure and we know representation matters. And we are, we very much take on like the intent. We have the right intent of doing this program. So, um, so yeah, that's what I wanted to add about the impacts program. And I can tell you, you know, all of these kinds of things are really working here. You know, UNC Pembroke is a school where the overwhelming majority, overwhelming majority of students here are female. Hmm. We're also a minority serving institution, proud of our American Indian roots, but also have plenty of African-Americans, Hispanics, lots of first-generation college students, and our STEM growth here at this minority-serving institution is up 35% in the last five years. Wow. So the message of all these programs is getting out. I can be whatever it is I want to be, and whoever I am, there's someone else in science who's just like me. So we've, we've certainly um, all are all benefiting from this. What about the biggest misconceptions that folks have about how scientists work? How, how do you teach people about how scientists go about what it is they do every day, not just at an event here or there, but on a daily basis? I think we do science. I think we do science on a daily basis, and that's one misconception. The misconception that the scientist is different from the average ordinary person. But that's what we are. We're average ordinary people, most of us. <laughs> we are very few Einsteins, right? <laughs> and the thing about that is getting them to understand that science is methodical. And those folks, I, I, that's how I am. I am so methodical. It just drives other people crazy. But... You have to be methodical in what you're doing. And secondly, you have to understand what the parameters are and what dynamics can be altered and how to just random alterations influence your data and understanding how to repeat and what repeating really means, keeping things identical and doing it the same way each time. The thing I think is a negative for folks is science is slow. It's not something that you would get an immediate response to. And if people are in the moment, they don't get that response in the moment. It takes a long time to go through that methodical replication in exactly the same way each time to derive the same response and know that your data is good. I'd also add that I think there's a stigma. You mentioned the lab coat and the Albert Einstein kind of stereotype, but also that it's, that it's uh, a lonely person working by themselves in and in under a fluorescent bulb in one lab. We have field researchers. We have people out working in interesting places. And it's a really incredibly social endeavor. So people, scientists talk to each other and collaborate with each other just like you would in any other field. And it's global. And it's global. That's a great point, yeah. So let's, let's turn it back on you guys here for a second. Talk about some portion or some element of science that was particularly hard for you. Because one of the raps that science gets is it's just so hard. What, what was one thing that was really hard for you to get as a student or in your career? How did you eventually get comfortable with that idea or that task? And then how would you then use your ability to overcome that obstacle to teach somebody else to keep going when science starts to get hard? I just did a, hosted a, uh, a science cafe with a quantum computing expert. 
this is where the sort of the science communication world can backfire. Is that the, the format is at a at a local pub. We let the scientists have a beer and chat with the audience. Sounds like chemistry to me. <laughs> formal setting. 20 minutes, then we get to Q&A. What I didn't realize how advanced quantum computing was, and he says basically something along the lines of, and, oh, by the way, your computer runs on electrons. Let's just skip past that and get back to the, and I was like, Wait a minute. So I realized, like, for some a topic like that, sometimes you really do need to break it up into smaller pieces. We needed to hear a short talk on how computers work, which would be interesting, because I don't know how. Does it, do you know how computers work? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm not totally sure. I know that they're great. Um, the, second, the second thing is how does quantum physics work, which is I've read chapters and books, and I still don't totally understand it. And then finally putting it together, this future of computing and the possibility, really exciting possibility of quantum computing. But I, I would say that it's, science is hard and I still don't understand it. And certain topics like that, but breaking it up into more manageable chunks certainly helps in talking to experts. But I'm curious to hear what others say. I think what you said was really important, and that's the fact that sometimes uh, if you think a subject is too hard, you're going to gloss over it. And that doesn't bring other people in and get them interested in that. So if you go off over it and they don't understand it, they're never going to have that interest. Why would they want to go into that particular field? Right. And I think that's really important is getting things at their level and to the point that they can manage it. You've got to have a little bit of background, maybe not to every minute detail being there, but some background. Okay, so... A course that I really struggled with was structural geology. Now, it was one of my favorite courses and something that I wish I could teach here eventually. I, and I've now had several courses in structural geology. But you have to have a really good grasp on geometry. And it had been a long time since I'd had any practice with geometry. Oh, and trigonometry. So I went into that class, and I hadn't had the proper math classes that I needed for like 10 years. <laughs> so I did struggle and I tried really hard on my homeworks and my homework assignments. I ended up getting a C in that class, which was not reflective of how much I learned by the time that class was over. And of course, what I had to do was, was go to old textbooks that I had or things I found online and basically reteach myself some of the concepts of geometry and trigonometry and just practice over and over again some of those homework problems. By the time that semester was finished, I felt like I was pretty decent at structural geology and I could make a geologic map and I could draw a, a cross section and I remembered how to use a protractor. And I keep all these things in mind if I was ever gonna, I wouldn't be teaching that to the grade school kids for a demonstration, but if I was gonna teach that to college students here, then I might start with a review of the important trig functions. Well, I'm curious, what kept you going and not just scrapping it? Was it because okay. of the big picture or? Well, the big picture, yes, but my story is unique. I was actually at West Virginia, West Virginia University in a graduate program for economics, and I was so miserable. <laughs> and I discovered that I would much rather watch um, Discovery Channels. Yes, you know, any science, but particularly geology, I was much more interested in what I was seeing on Discovery Channel than reading about classical economic theory. So I already knew that I had tried something else in the business world and didn't really like it, and I just really wanted to be a scientist, so I just that kept me going. 
So what I'm hearing is how do you eat the elephant? Sometimes you have to eat it one bite at a time, right? You master the first step and then that builds you confidence to climb to the second one and then eventually to the third. And then before you know it, you put all these pieces together. Um, and you probably all have stories of the motivation and the sense of accomplishment you have from taking on something like geology um, and becoming proficient at it and helping you in all sorts of other things. Um, let's shift gears one more time. So if a member of the general public who hasn't done science for a long time were to spend a day with you or spend a day in your lab or spend a day researching with you, what is it that you think they would immediately learn about how scientists work every day? Okay, so if a member of the public was going to come do some kind of research activity with me, what uh, my choice would be digging a trench near a known fault, perhaps a lesser known fault, like the Woodstock Fault that is uh, in the Somerville, Charleston, South Carolina area. Um, and what they might notice is that the work outside can be hot and humid and sticky and they might get bored easily at first and um, but you have to dig your trench and you have to carefully go through and look at the different layers of sediment and there are certain things that you might be looking for like uh, what we refer to as sand blows or sand volcanoes which are evidence of past liquefaction that only happens in larger earthquake events. So it might be a slow day for them, and they're going to drink a lot of Gatorade, but by the end of the day, if we have hopefully found a sand blow or two and been able to you know, kind of explain this in context and take some samples to send off for some kind of dating method to try to narrow down you know, how long ago that event happened, maybe by the end of the day they would see that um, science requires field work, in particular require, all scientific endeavors require uh, patience and perseverance and there's always a possibility that where you dig your trench you're not going to find anything <laughs> but you just have to still know that that was a good day in the field and go try again somewhere else invite them to come back tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> send them to belinda warriax's lab <laughs> better time and i think that's true too is um there has to be that ele element of patience Sometimes people overlook something very obvious because they're just accustomed to that thing being there. But how that thing may be different, that obvious thing that now is a little bit different, that's, that may be the unique feature. And I try to incorporate that into my courses is that, you know, everything that came about as being brand new discoveries were not planned. Sometimes things just happened and somebody was observant enough to see this thing's just a little bit different. Hmm, wonder why that is. So sometimes what changes is not the answers you get, but the questions. Yes. And that's usually what happens with research. One result leads you maybe in a totally different direction with a totally new set of questions. And speaking of totally different direction with a totally different set of questions, so in the field of informal education where I am, my background is science. I have a biology degree, a BS in biology, and a minor in environmental science. But what I do, every day is different in informal education. I work at a planetarium, and what I do is I train scientists how to communicate to the public. So every day looks different. Everyone around me has a 
different STEM backgrounds, and they're all doing something different with uh, either science or science outreach, or doing what type of, uh, or coordinating what type of programs go on within a science center. So if I were to bring somebody over to my job to shadow me, I think the first thing that they'll learn is the breadth and depth of science. It's more than just what we see on TV. Like you can be a science communicator, you can be an educator, you can do all of this stuff. And then I would take them to a training or an event where uh, my impactors, the scientists that are participating, are in, and then they can see more variety of STEM and that it's we're not pigeonholed. We're not, I am just doing biology. No, if I like art, I can do art and biology. I can blend different techniques and backgrounds together, and they'll be able to see, one, breadth and depth of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and also how fun it actually is. Yes, every day um, you're in the lab and you're testing things and some things may not come out right, but there are things that we do know and there are cool things that we do want to tell the public and get the public excited about. And I think the visitor, when shadowing me, will see how much effort the scientists are putting into getting people excited about their field because people need to be excited about STEM. And it's awesome and it's fun and it's a way to give back to your community. So I think they'll see that as well. So they'll see all of the venues that they can go through in STEM and actually how cool STEM actually is. Good stuff. All right, so last question. Let's see if I can get a volunteer here. Talk about a complicated uh, topic that's hard for people to understand, and you pick the topic, and then break it down into a couple of different steps so that uh, a member of the general public or an elementary school kid or anyone in between could walk away with some understanding of a complicated idea that you have made approachable. I'll give a stab at that. So chemical bonding. I am trained as a chemist, and having folks understand what bonds are and how they coordinate molecules and give shapes to molecules, they have a really hard time doing that. And one of the things about that, too, is the difficulty in getting them to understand the strength of a bond or the distance between bonds. So I kind of equate bonding to be kind of like human relationships. (laughs) And in being human relationships, my example is, let's say it's a really, really weak bond like a Vanderbilt. It's something temporary, and it goes and comes back again. That's kind of like you see somebody, you kind of like them a little bit, you ask them out, you go out, and mm, at the end of the night, mm, I don't want to do this all over again, so that's the end of that one. Mm-hmm. But then when you get a stronger bond, say like a hydrogen bond, it's kind of like where you're going to date this somebody for a little while, and it's not just a one-time date, it's several times dating, maybe a couple months dating. And then you decide this is not the right person. And then the strength of maybe like an ionic bond that's kind of a strong ionic bond might be things like you like somebody enough to where you're actually going to marry them and you're going to live with them for a while, but it's short term. <laughs> <laughs> but a covalent bond might be something like you're going to marry this person and you're going to live with them 50 years. That person is the love of your life and you're staying with them for a really, really long time. So that gives you an idea that it's an attraction, attractive force between different types of molecules. It's going to, they're going to hold on to each other for a little while, sometimes hold on for a really long time, depending upon the bond type. So there's a strength in, in that relationship, and it's totally dependent upon individual individuals and 
how that person is, the characteristics that they have, that sort of thing. She's a natural. I wish you were a history teacher. Like that's exactly what we want when scientists communicate. Tie it to something that we all can identify with break it down into steps and make it meaningful. That's because I've done an activity with chemical bonding with kids that were in kindergarten and they could understand that part. I think the last time uh, Richard checked, um, our podcast has been heard in like 60 different countries. There's people in 60 different countries now looking for that ionic bond. (laughs) (laughs) Take them through the next 50 years. They might not. They might be looking for a hydrogen bond for some people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been great. I thank uh, all of you for your expertise and your passion today, and uh, particularly our friends from the Moorhead Planetarium who have come down to join in our conversation. Tune in next time for another edition of 30 Brave Minutes. Today's podcast was edited by Richard Gay and transcribed by Janet Gentis. Theme music created by Riley Morton. This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of UNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research, technology, or industry standards. Thanks for listening, and go Braves! Good job, everybody!